0: Hello and welcome to Android Bytes. I'm David Ruddock, and each week I'm joined by my co-host Michelle Raman as we dive deep into the world of Android. And on this week's episode, we have some repeat guests. Who, if you're at all into the Android hardware space, you've heard of these people, their company, and the product that they're building. And so,
1: Michelle, take it away. Thanks, David. So we've re-invited two very awesome guests onto the show, and. That, by the way, it was intentional. We've invited Jason Keats and Gary Anderson from Awesome. That's O S O M not to be confused with A W E A-W-E-S-O-M-E, S O M E. Although they are two very awesome people. Thank you for joining us.
2: Cheers. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for having us again. Glad to be back.
1: Yeah. So last time we had such a long discussion that we had to split it up into two separate episodes. We talked a lot about the process of getting AOSP and GMS onto a device, the whole step-by-step process you got to go through it takes many months, you got to get a build ready to integrate GMS, you got to certify it, you got to go through third party labs, you got to make sure all your I's are dotted, all your T's are crossed, there's so much you got to do just to get GMS working on a device. And that's fundamental is shipping a device to consumers. If you want to have any sort of success with the regular user, and you want to ship an Android device, you pretty much need GMS onto it. It's a different story with enterprise devices. But that's something we'll get into later. But on today's episode, I wanted to talk about the many, many, many aspects of getting a device onto market that most users probably aren't familiar with. So I'm sure you wondered, you've seen a great new phone that's only available in X or Y market, and you're like, why isn't this device available where I'm living? Why can't I just buy it in a store? why is it only available online? Or why is there no warranty? Or why is it missing this feature? Or like, why can't I watch Netflix and HD on it? There's so many different (laughs) little things that go into actually making a phone do everything you expect it to do. And it's kind of really hard to actually explain what everything needs to be done to actually, you know, get all these things working. And so I wanted to bring Jason and Gary back onto the show to explain some of these things. We're kind of Going off on wild tangents this time, we don't have a strict outline we're following. We don't have pre-planned questions, but uh, I think this will still be a very interesting and fun discussion.
3: Yeah, I think it's super cool. I, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is how much certification, how much work goes in on the background in just getting a device made to be legal to distribute in any one particular country or any set of countries. And uh, it, it's quite significant. A lot of it takes a hell of a lot of time to do actually just in preparation for this, I brought up our certification list and it's kind of interesting, right? And you and I have chatted about it in private that a lot of companies want to hide this. They want to be very protective or secretive of how to build a device. I'm not hundred percent sure why. And awesome really stands for transparency in this. We want to talk about it and share once the product is kind of done, what has to be finished before we can put it in user hands. And that's where we stand today. Certainly interesting when we have a lot of customers who are like, Hey, you know, You said you were shipping this date or, you know, we made a change and how come it's taking so much longer. And, you know, a great example is to go over the lead times and certifications that can only be started once a particular level of readiness is finished.
1: So uh, this is kind of going off on a tangent, like I just promised I would. But I think earlier today, Mark Gurman from Bloomberg tweeted that. um, I don't know if those of you have seen the iPhone 14 launch, but, you know, the whole dynamic island thing, right? In order to hide the fact that they were going to call it Dynamic Island, Apple actually filed, I think, a trademark for it in Jamaica. And in order to actually, because the Jamaican trademark database isn't searchable, you have to actually physically go in person to their offices in order to determine whether or not something's trademarked. People had no idea this name was coming until, I think, earlier this week or earlier today or something, the trademark was filed, I think, with New Zealand or Australia. And then that referenced the (laughs) earlier Jamaican trademark registration. And then we're like, that is really, really, really clever legal work right there. But like it kind of goes to show there's just so many little things you have to do. Like even just if you want to call something a name and have it be protected, you got to file a trademark. But then which countries do you file that trademark in? And like, how do you make sure you aren't revealing too much information in any of these certification filings or trademark filings? You know, you don't want to leak your own products just because you have to get something legally certified to be able to be distributed in a certain country.
3: So I kind of want to start with well, that. Why don't I go off on a separate tension? <laughs> yeah, it, it entertained the hell out of me this year, honestly. So when we were getting our IMEI numbers, which so when you're building a phone early on in the development, you have to apply for IMEI numbers. And when I was getting those, they're like, oh, we need a copy of your trademark for your logo. And it was like, seriously, they're like, oh, it's a new thing. You know, you have to have a logo on the phone. And you have to have it registered. And I was like, well, at essential, we didn't have anything on the phone. And they're like, yeah, it's a new thing. You wouldn't have been able to ship a phone without a logo anymore. And I was so confused that that was the slowdown in getting IMEI numbers. Like, Okay, let me go finish registering our trademark logo so that I could get IMEI numbers so we could start testing. And uh, at one point the guy was like, oh, it needs to be completed. I'm like, you know how long it takes to get a trademark approved in the United States. It's like a two, three year process. And okay, guys like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, we just need to see you applied for the trademark. But that, that was the gatekeeper to getting to IMEI numbers so that we could start testing cracked me up. Speaking of IMEI numbers, something that I found
1: pretty funny was that when you're submitting an FC filing, you know, you, you have to submit details about the EUT or the equipment under test. And oftentimes that includes the IMEI number of that device. So a lot of times within the FCC filing, you won't find the marketing name of the device in question. You'll just find the model number like SM-something. But often what leakers would do is they would look at the IMEI numbers submitted in the FCC filing, and they would go to IMEI databases that are maybe provided by some carriers. I think Ting was a popular example. They would input that IMEI, and then within Ting's database, it would correlate that IMEI to the product name. So people would figure out, hey, this filing is for this product. And it's like... (laughs) Just the game of telephone with like, how do you piece together information from these bits and pieces thrown to certifications? And it's just like, I, I'm I'm curious, like what goes into this action, the, the FCC certification filing, like um, how much of that is done in house and how much of that is relegated to third party companies because of lack of equipment uh, or time or resources?
3: It really depends. So I'll tell you right now, we have 22 certification items that we go through that take Anywhere from I'm literally looking at this right now from one week to twelve weeks to twenty four weeks to finish certifications. Ever that includes CE, FCC, UL, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth Alliance, uh, Canadian Electrical Code. I'm just pulling some random ones out. IP ratings, UKCA, which is a newish one since the UK decided they don't want to be part of the EU anymore. Uh, GCF, PTCRB. So it depends on which it is. Some of them we do in-house, some of them we do in parallel with our contract manufacturer, our CM, and some we farm out to third-party labs. Several of them are just self-reported results, but some of them have to be verified by third parties.
1: So apart from like the telecommunications regulatory agency in you know whatever country you want to ship a device in, for example, for every radio hardware in the device, NFC, Bluetooth, ultra-wideband, Each of these have their own industry standards group that requires you to go through a certification process in order to license the branding. I think Bluetooth special interest group is one example where you have to actually get their approval in order to stamp that this device supports Bluetooth. Can you explain a bit about those interest groups and like what the process is like apart from what people might
3: know? I would say Bluetooth and Wi-Fi are fairly simple, to be honest. It's in terms of doing some basic testings that we do in-house and we provide our results and they validate our results and they just double-check it, make sure we're not BSing them on noise or volume or any other issues that might occur to make sure that our measured spec matches our promoted spec. And they're quite easy. The hardest one certainly is the cellular antennas, particularly with the advent of 5G. When we started Awesome two years ago, two and a half years ago, we were talking to certification labs and they were giving us lead times of like nine months to do certification on 5g antennas thankfully that's come down to three months now but those were scary days like oh we'd get to the point where we'd be done with manufacturing to an extent and now we got to sit on our hands for seven to nine months while we wait for certification to come in right i'm curious about the antenna certification
2: i
0: mean aside from like the length of delay obviously because there's so many 5g devices being certified right now Is there a big difference between certifying for 4G?
3: As far as I could tell, no. To be honest, the labs were fairly non-transparent about what the process was and why it took so long. I suspect in those earlier days, they were more just trying to figure out what they wanted to study, and they just assumed it would take a lot longer.
0: Hmm. I'm curious about Bluetooth, so we see bluetooth performance vary so wildly across devices and part of that is chipset of course <laughs> they're probably working with different firmware like literally depending on when that device was certified or whatever qualcomm chip it used was last updated and it sounds like obviously based on what you said bluetooth sig is kind of like not rubber stamping it but <laughs>
3: not it's it's more just validating the result like if we say right. if, if in our own testing we say okay, this is the range it's good for, and this is the signal strength at that range. All they're going to go do is validate whether or not what we said is accurate. Got it. Do you
0: feel like they're doing a good job protecting consumers in that sense as the SIG? At
3: our level, absolutely. I think the biggest problem comes in with the random pair of headphones you bought for $4.99 on Amazon might not connect as well. And a lot of people tend to blame that on the phone or the device you're connecting to, not on the device you're connecting with. And a lot of that comes back to power numbers, right? If they want a really, really inexpensive Bluetooth device, they're not gonna put a very fancy battery. So the signal strength and reception is gonna be very weak and you're gonna get a poor connection. So it's a good segue into conversations about when we're partnering with other companies, we're going to be curating accessories to go with. Saga is finding partners who are using the right chipset. They've made the right investments in terms of power and performance on their Bluetooth connectivity and other features and making sure that devices work well with Saga. See, that's that's really interesting to me because I feel like the amount of Bluetooth validation that happens
0: out there in terms of accessory side is basically zero. Google has tried <laughs> a little bit, but I don't think they've had much success. I'm wearing a pair of like Google certified. These are the Mont Blanc MBO1, the buggiest pair of headphones I've ever owned, far and away. So <laughs> it's just a personal curiosity for me, I guess, given Bluetooth.
3: yeah, sir. I, you know, it's funny. I I've gone... I love audio equipment. I I, like, I have so many random fancy headphones and amps and things like that. And, uh, I went full wireless and now I've sort of made my way back to wired because at the end of the day, you could, yeah, there's a benefit to being wired. You don't have to worry about battery at all. You don't have to sacrifice that space in the device for battery. And you can just punch so much more power into audio if you're hardwired.
1: You know, I actually think, David, your issue might just be more with Bluetooth in general. Bluetooth is notoriously a very buggy mess, no matter what platform it is. And there are many efforts on the Android side to make things more stable with like a rewrite of the Bluetooth stack. On the certification side, something that's even more of a mess, and I think we can all agree on this, is USB. How in the world are you supposed to tell what a USB 3.2 Gen 1X5, whatever the heck that's supposed to mean, right? The average user probably has no idea. There's so many different labels and so many different numbers. Something that I found this quite interesting is like in the world of USB-C enthusiasts, yes, there is a community on Reddit that is prided themselves on being enthusiasts around USB-C. There's so many different cables and chargers and stuff you can buy off of like Amazon, but like if it's not usb IF certify, people generally say to avoid those products because only a couple of these products actually go as far as receiving USB-IF certification. That kind of wanted me to ask you, Jason, how many of these certifications or which certifications are actually necessary or rather mandatory to actually bring a device to market? Do you have to get USB-IF certification? Do you have to get Bluetooth 6 certification, Wi-Fi lines, et
3: cetera? Um, I'm just looking at the list right now, and I'll honestly, to give you a, a, an exact answer they're basically out of these 22 that we're doing 18 of them are required the ones that aren't necessarily required so like one of them is for amazon only only amazon actually requires us to have a ul certification but we do it anyways just in case we sell through amazon at this point we're not doing it but we want to make sure it's there and we're doing them all at the same time i'm literally reading through all of these the <laughs> time. Actually, all of these we do, we, we mandate for ourselves that we do these and make sure that the product that reaches the customer meets our high standard that we expect from our products. IP rating, it's self-reported to an extent. Frankly, IP rating is always one of those certifications that cracks me up at IP68 because IP68 literally just means more than IP67. Like IP67 is one hour, uh, sorry, one meter, 30 minutes. Anything beyond that's considered IP68. So you could do five hours of 10 meters, you'd still be IP68.
0: One of the ironies about that, and I'm, I'm curious to your thoughts here. So to me, IP66 would be the most intense way you could ruggedize a device because that's high temperature water jets, right?
3: Uh, not really. IP67 is definitely harder. Okay. Interesting. Because I see few devices. Because that it's prolonged the prolonged pressure. Right. Over the entire device, because what can happen is as you get pressure over the entire device at one meter, you could cause a lift in one spot that creates a gap on the other side of the device, just because you're under pressure, the entire device under pressure. Whereas if you're just targeting it with IP66, mm -hmm. that one's not that difficult to pass. Once you get to 67 and 68, it gets more difficult. I'm very, very Mm -hmm. proud to say that Saga is IP68 rated now. So if I have a lot of time to get there, to be honest. (laughs) I mean,
1: for consumer peace of mind, it was always nice to know you know whether or not a product is i p rated or not, but as you mentioned i p ratings like the the is collected on it's self reported but if yep. correct me if I'm wrong to actually label your device with an i p rating, do you have to pay a licensing fee? I remember hearing something like that you do I don't remember what it's not much to be honest, okay. I was always wondering at what point is there a a decent trade off whether or not you know, okay, we can say that we do meet these standards but we're not going to call ourselves ip rated because we don't think we should pay this fee in order to just slap this label on our device even though we are functionally equivalent to ip68 but we don't want to have this branding or we don't think it's necessary
3: i think customers really want to see that number i think for marketing purposes very important what's quite interesting i had this conversation with uh, one of the car- the ceo of one of the major u.s carriers i was like you know what's your return rate for water damage? And the guy goes, practically nil. It's incredibly rare the device actually gets returned for water damage. Any phone, even ones that aren't IP rated, that could also come from just people going, oh, I dumped in the toilet and then flushed and then threw it overboard. That might be on me. But people like to know that their device can go outside and get accidentally a little wet, and they can be safe without having to worry about it being damaged. And I think that it speaks to it mostly being a
0: peace of mind kind of marketing thing. Because in all honesty, Motorola tried to make the unbreakable phone and nobody cared. If that's what people actually wanted, they would have bought that thing and drove.
3: I had a conversation when we were building, uh, middle of the road when we were building the essential phone. And one of our marketing guys was said, oh, can we call it an unbreakable? And I looked at him and said, dude, you hand me a block of billet titanium, just a solid block of titanium. As an engineer, I'll figure out how to break it. You can't call anything unbreakable. Everything's breakable within reason. So anybody says they're going to build an unbreakable phone is out of their mind. I mean, I I have built some phones in the past and prototypes that could withstand a hell of a beating. We did one that I would still love to do one day. It'd be kind of crazy expensive. But when we were building Project Gem, when we were looking at the materials for the housing, I built some out of silicon nitride, which is a similar material they make bulletproof vests out of. I could take that housing out into the parking lot and spike it like a football and it'd be fine. It was kind of unreal. <laughs> sure. Each housing costs like a thousand bucks. So maybe not great in mass production. Um, but it was super, super cool uh, to break it. I had to freeze it and then hit it with a hammer. So speaking of breaking and freezing
0: and hitting with a hammer, that gets to the other group of ruggedization standards. You brought it up before I cut you off. I'm sorry, which is the mil 810G, which to me actually like there are way more fun things you can claim with Mill 810G because it covers so many things. But I guess like, You know, LG tried to use it. A couple of brands tried to use it. It doesn't seem to stick with consumers.
3: Yeah, I don't, I am not that familiar. Well, I am vaguely familiar, but it's been a while since I've looked at the mil spec standard because to your point, nobody really cared. And in some cases it's weaker than the standard that we put on ourselves that has become the de facto for uh, mobile devices.
1: So speaking of standards you put on yourselves, I wanted to ask you, what are some examples of optional certifications beyond like IP ratings that a lot of companies seem to go for because they think it'd be beneficial to the baseline of the product or just the branding in general?
3: You know, the craziest one is always drop testing. And as a person who's been building phones and laptops and tablets for the better part of 20 years now, it's both the most fun and the most heartbreaking to watch the abuse that we continuously put on devices while we're doing development random drop tests, tumble tests, which are literally, when you go to the factories, oftentimes it's like a handmade dryer, <laughs> literally just a tumble, like a wheel that's just dropping phones constantly against things. So we do a one meter drop test onto granite. The traditional test is either one or one and a half meter onto polished granite. And that's what most phone manufacturers work to, at least in the Western world. And we sit there and we drop and we drop and we smash and we smash and we make minor little tweaks to the geometry of the housing or the geometry of the cover glass or the thickness or the position of foams on the inside. It's a constant little twist and turn and just trying to get closer and closer to being better and better under those drop tests. But at the end of the day, there is no amount of testing anybody can do or any self-certification we can do that guarantees that a foam won't break when you drop it.
0: I guess in terms of breakability, I'm curious, what do you think about the evolution of glass materials and where we're at right now? Because <laughs> it seems to have we're- slowed down a lot.
3: Uh, and I don't think it's slowed down a lot, uh, partially because I have very close friendships with the team at Corning. They've been wonderful supporters of us at Essential and then us now at Awesome. We're using the latest and greatest Gorilla Glass on the front of the device. And the big push that's maybe caused some uh, outwardly visible reduction in what's going on in glass development is this big push towards 3D glasses. And 3D glass is much more complicated to manufacture in mass production, both in terms of tolerances and fragility. But like we saw in Project Gem, it's doable. It just takes a buttload of dedicated work to get there. But in terms of flat panel glass and glass ceramics, there's still quite a bit of development going on there. The team at Corning has a, just a building full of mad scientists constantly trying to improve both strength and transparency of the glass. That's the one a lot of people don't realize because we're talking about minuscule percentages improvements in transparency while also greatly increasing strength and scratch resistance and frequently strength and scratch resistance is inversely proportional to clarity of the glass transparency and so they can make it stronger but then they lose some transparency and your front camera might not look as good so there's a lot of back and forth on those spaces and it's constantly ongoing and I was a little surprised Corning didn't make as big a stink about their latest cover glass. And honestly, at the moment, I'm forgetting what it's called. It's not Gorilla Glass 7. It's Invictus. Thank you. Thank you. Invictus Glass. I don't know why the marketing changed. But uh, yeah, we didn't hear as much of it when they, as, as we did when they launched Gorilla Glass 5 and 6. But Invictus is stronger. It's slightly more transparent. I mean, we're talking fraction of a percent. And it is more scratch resistant.
0: I mean, and don't get me wrong here. I think that there are still improvements. I guess you're right. They've not communicated it as clearly as they could have because I have my iPhone 13 Pro Max here and the number of scratches on this thing is almost embarrassing. I have watched it fly 20 feet across an airport floor and just skid the entire way. Not a single (laughs) crack on it. So they're doing something right. But my Pixel 6 Pro is utterly destroyed. I've dropped it several times. It's
3: got like five different cracks on the back
0: now at this point. And uh, I'm just waiting for the front to crack. So yeah, it's, it's a big reason why it's all it
3: anecdotal. Yeah, but well, you're absolutely right. And it, I don't, I don't remember what's on the Pixel Six, but there is also a trade-off between strength and scratch resistance too. So it's a constant battle between those three variables: scratch resistance, crack resistance, and clarity. And then, and then that gets we could spend a whole hour talking about why foldables are still a bad idea. And it really comes down to the display. I don't even want to call it glass because it's the minutest, thinnest piece of glass and then a bunch of plastic a strata perhaps (laughs) something like that i've had conversations with a few glass manufacturers about foldables and each one of them were like yeah glass is not meant to bend (laughs) despite everything they're doing glass does not bend nicely which means having to use plastic and plastic is kind of a crap material for covering your display
1: yeah foldables that's kind of the reason why i'm holding out personally i've seen like great results. A lot of people are really enjoying their Z Fold3s and Z Fold4s, and there's a lot of competition. But like, unless you're an already established brand with a deep relationship with a display manufacturer, and you're probably not getting into the foldable business as a startup, at least not without a lot of connections.
3: Oh, to be honest, they, they are desperately trying to sell foldable displays to other people because the display manufacturers put a ton of money, invested a ton of money into foldable tech and development for all their processes into foldables. And other than Samsung and a couple of Chinese brands, nobody's pursuing it that hard for that reason. So probably once a quarter, you get a call from our display guy. Hey, we made minor improvements in the cover glass for the foldable. You sure you don't want to use one on your next phone? So it's not a matter of that. It's a matter of not that great of a user experience yet. And I haven't seen one that really blows me away.
1: Well, their margins are probably a lot higher on those foldable displays. So not surprised they're pitching them to you. (laughs) I kind of wanted to ask you though, the two of you, you have extensive experience in building a smartphone startup. And actually you have a lot of partnerships already. You have a lot of contacts at all these companies. And as we've talked about, there's so many different certifications, so many different things. You mentioned there's 22 certifications that you're pursuing for the saga. And I'm like, if you're someone who wants to build your own smartphone, and you're not already well-connected and in this industry, where would you even begin? How do you even begin to navigate this mess? Are there (laughs) companies that actually specialize in helping you get these certifications around the world? What do people do? Most people just go for ODPRM
3: designs? Even then, you still have to get certified because if you want to market it under your name, all the certifications have to be in your name. So even the Saga, which is sold through Solana, it still has a strong connection to Awesome because all the certifications are done by Awesome. If I had no connections and no knowledge of all the certifications that are required, besides starting at the bottom of a bottle of whiskey, (laughs) um, I, yeah, I don't even know where I would start. I'd probably go through my CM and be like, Hey, who have you used in the past for US? Or it depends where you're trying to launch. If you're trying to launch in Asia, it's a lot easier. If you're trying to launch in the US, it's way more difficult. As we saw, there was, you know, I'm not going to call them out by name, but there was another recent company that's moving into the mobile space they're not launching in the US because it is much more difficult here. So it really depends where you're launching what you want to achieve with what you have. There are certainly third party companies that can facilitate some but not all, you'd probably need two or three third party companies to get you through this entire list. And you need a DM that really want to be on your working on your behalf.
2: Yeah, and that's how we got introduced to Solana in the first place, because they wanted to do that exact thing. And they went out and searched far and wide with what was available out there, just to kind of learn what it would take to build a phone, a mobile phone, and launch it in in the states and and in Europe, in the initial efforts that we're doing here. So they went far and wide and came to the point or conclusion. And some of them, granted, have come from Qualcomm. You know, the, the uh, CEO of or co-founder of Solana had worked at Qualcomm for ten plus years. Uh, a lot of their founding members came from there too. So they had touched parts of it, but not launching a full-on device with all the certifications, everything else. That's why they came to us and in the speed they wanted to move, I think that's where it made the most sense to go with a company like us, who's able to make changes and adapt to some of the features that they wanted for the saga and it being a key directing factor for
1: some of the other OEMs that are in the space. So while we're talking about the saga, I actually wanted to ask, I believe you confirmed that this device is launching in Q1 of 2023, or is it the first half?
3: Q1. And we've also announced that there will be a limited number of developer units available before that, because the big push behind all of this is to bring more and more developers who are generalists in Web3, who have probably been building for desktop into the mobile space. So we're getting them access a bit earlier. And these are pre-production devices. So when those devices are made available, they are pre-production, but we are making sure to bring in and again, be more transparent with what we're doing and open up the development of a device to a broader community, which nobody's ever done before.
0: I have a question about pre-production. We get told all the time when we get a phone to review, especially ahead of launch, like, oh, this is a pre-production device. And usually that's a coverall for we're going to deploy a zero-day firmware update. Like, that's all they usually mean. What about, <laughs> what to you does pre-production really mean? Like, are there hardware
3: differences? What happens in those final stages of refinement? So that's a great question. So I'll, I'll give you the whole answer. So bear with me. So, typically, what it is, is we go into a DVT build, which is design validation test build, with the knowledge that it is pencils down from a hardware standpoint and largely a firmware pencils down as well. And to be very transparent, we're in that build right now. We're just exiting our DVT build right now. Then, those devices are given to these 22 agency or 22 uh, uh, certification agencies. And you cannot change the hardware at that point. If you have to, then you have to redo all these certifications so when you're given some free production hardware if it's a dvt level device it means that the hardware is going to stay the same but there will be significant software and firmware improvements over time firmware limited updates we can't change radio and stuff like that at that point but we can improve camera tuning we can improve audio we can improve display battery life over time but we cannot tweak the uh, radio performance once it's gone through certification right and from time to time
1: you'll see a lot of these prototypes or like actual pre-production units pop up on like ebay because people who have these who have held onto these devices and who honestly shouldn't be selling them decide to go sell them and that's how you figure out that hey that divot on the back of the nexus 6 was actually supposed to be a fingerprint scanner because there are actually pre-production nexus 6 units on ebay with fingerprint scanners on the back so like, uh, you yeah, and that, would have,
3: that would have been a, a pre-certification device then.
1: Yeah. And I've actually, I mean, I've used a pre-certification device before. Like, I'm not gonna mention what it was or like who it was from, but like it was wrapped in this giant thick case and like, you could actually see the phone case itself, it was like clearly meant to kind of hide the identity, but I think it was like super pre-production and you know, <laughs> they didn't have the backing fully ready yet, all I could tell basically was a software, like they were doing software bring up yeah. and. You know, I was offering some feedback on the software, but
3: it's called uh, uh, lunchboxing, right? Uh, it depends. We call it dog fooding. It uh, yeah. all depends on the vendor. You know, it was a fun thing when we did uh, Project Jim. I know I harp on it a lot, but it was fun because we made weird cases that made it look like a regular phone just to hide the fact that it was so weirdly shaped. We didn't do that with Saga or our with our, we had a different internal code name, but we just let them out in the world. It's been quite entertaining it, when I've been traveling with it and I've traveled all over the world with it already. The most common comment I've gotten because it doesn't have the logo, the pre-production units don't have the Solana logo on them and final color scheme is, is that the iPhone 14? Obviously the iPhone has been launched now, but uh, up until recently, people would automatically assume because they feel the build quality, look at how unique it looked and just assume it had to have come from Apple. And I, depending on who I'm talking to, I'll joke, well, it did come from Cupertino, but not from them. So yeah, you can do it. Some people wanna hide it. I, you know. I don't yeah the average person on the street cares that much
2: right so the so the leaks are pretty i think conscious or if you were to see a a device out in the wild people aren't trying to hide it as much as they used to i think for pre-production units you know when keats talks about dvt and then there's a phase before that which are engineering validation test units which may have varying hardware in them like you might have a smaller memory because it's cheaper or more uh, affordable and accessible for the time during engineering validation tests. That just allows us to develop still internally from the software end. But from a hardware perspective, it may not be that in parity with what we would be for production units. And then for pre-production from the software perspective, yeah, you're not gonna have a lot of features. There is a factory acceptance test build that you do provide that the factory will just end up flashing that old, old, old software on there. And it's usually like three months updated at the point to production. So it means that, hey, there's really old software on that unless you take an OTA or it's a camera thing where the t- um, Keiths mentioned tuning. That's actually a really, really long tail thing where you have essentially three phases of tuning. One is objective tuning, which makes your greens green, blues, blue and red, red. But then when you do subjective tuning phases, it's like your greens are greener, your blues are bluer and your reds are redder. Uh, and that's for different scenes, too. And subjective, the longer you tune, the better your camera is. and that's really what stops you from being able to have it production ready. A lot of the times it's not able to start testing until DVT comes out. Like you won't start to be able to tune stuff until your actual hardware comes out. And at that point, the longer you're tuned, the better the device is. Uh, so yeah, I think that kind of sums up what pre-production means. It's just software related.
1: Speaking of software, I wanted to kind of get an idea from you to how important the actual factory provisioning part is because I'm sure people are familiar with the term factory images. Like you can download them for a pixel and you know you can flash them onto your device. And Google says they restore your device to a factory state. But hmm. that's not actually true because there are certain things that the user just cannot flash or modify or things that have to be set only at the factory, such as like what Google's doing with the remote provisioning keys and other such like cryptographic things. Can you talk about it, a bit about that? Yeah, so there's stuff on the device that is considered persisted, uh, and that's
2: stuff that necessarily won't bring you back to an official factory state. And factory is really dependent on where you're taking that context from. Like if, if we consider it factory reset, there are things that go into the factory build initially, where you actually have certain apps that check the quality control outwardly before it leaves the facility. So we'll have like a test on there that runs a gamut of 40 plus tests, essentially checking that all the things on the device are functioning the way they're supposed to before it leaves the factory. And then we have other things that go onto the device that test the camera modules on quality control, meaning that you have different settings for camera images to make sure that the different glass that's attached to and layered on top of that module is taking clear enough pictures. There's a lot of stuff that goes into the factory that the users will never see. And you've seen that in Xiaomi phones where you can restore that test in there and then it writes essentially a file that says before it left the facility, it was in the state and it was good to go. So it was more at the factory level. That's what you'll see at the factory factory level. Um, when you do a factory reset, there'll be some things that from the system side, we're not doing anything that people won't be able to reset, like the stuff that we're doing with Saga. Everything will be able to be cleared essentially. But there's also factory reset protection, which is inherently made to allow people Scavage and steal devices from people to try and sell them on the secondary market for that to be protected. So what you'll end up seeing is if you ever registered a fingerprint and you try to factory reset the device without unlocking the phone, for example, first, uh, it'll go into a factory reset protection mode, which is something that Google implemented a while ago for, to kind of thwart you know those, those type of efforts for people on the secondary markets. But yeah, I think from a consumer standpoint, when they say factory reset, there'll be things that can't be cleared completely, but it'll be for the benefit of the owner of the device and not so much, you know, what OEMs do at a factory level or pre-production pretty, pretty testing for quality control.
1: So some of that factory level stuff, like the tools that you mentioned, they've sometimes leaked out into the wild and they're like ridiculously powerful in what they can do. Like, I believe there was an Oppo tool that was able to restore the Widevine provisioning key, something that's only supposed to be able to be provisioned at the factory. And there's a lot of these tools, like I think Believe from OnePlus, there are these, Um, I think they call them MSM download tools. Uh, the community is very fond of them, but there's actually like an extremely low level factory flashing tool that allow you to wipe and restore all partitions on the device back to the actual factory set. And like, there's a lot of these kind of tools that you users will never see on a production device because they're all stripped from bills before they're actually shipped to users. Can you talk about any of these tools, Jason or Gary? Like what are some of the useful things that engineers will have access to that, you know, users will never see the light of day.
2: There's a lot of things for convenience especially on like the camera testing side of things but those are typically like hey these are user debug builds or rooted builds to allow them to skip through ubi or something like that but you'll never see the light of day for that to show up on a production unit there are other stuff that is made for the factory to do what you had said like create different memory footprints and stuff in the original factory mode so factory mode meaning what you had mentioned earlier is that Uh, They have their own build at the factory that allows them to do their specific testing, but then our build goes into it and then they have to do testing that's different from their strictly hardware testing. I've worked at companies where they've had internal tools for you, like Odin or the ones that you mentioned, like OnePlus, uh, for you to to do those um, types of provisioning. But to do anything nefarious, you would need to essentially have what's green keyed in the ROM. So typically when you see that scary message, when you boot a device uh, that you've rooted or flashed a, a custom ROM on, you'll see something that says warning, like in big red letters. That seems very, very alarming. That's essentially why that's built into there is because you don't have a build going into the device that has been green keyed. And that green key is only owned by a set of individuals in the company. So the factory won't be able to assign a factory image that goes onto that hardware device that won't show that warning message. So typically we've had like something ub uh, keyed Uh, that's physically attached to signing a build and that green key exists in a physical world and is completely offline and you have a machine that only signs that build and then we release that signed build to uh, manufacturers uh, or, or the factory and then the factory never has the ability to do anything with their original factory build but the thing that goes out to consumers is just that green key build that's flashed by the factory and yeah there's a lot of like handshaking there but the factory has their own factory build that has a baseline for what they're used to. We have our build that has like a delta between their factory and what we did for our hardware specifically for like Qualcomm libraries and then uh, differences in Google AOSP that we've added on to it. And then all the things that we work worked with our hardware vendors and that gives a baseline for the hardware, that the software that actually goes out to consumers. Uh, it, it might be unclear or muddy there, but yeah, that's more or less where those two builds differentiate.
0: I mean, just as a kind of curious anecdote, it's I never would have considered there was essentially a firmware nuclear football that uh, smartphone <laughs> companies have to hold on to. And I'm curious. I mean, what do you all know about how companies tend to handle that? Because I imagine Samsung might do it a little differently than y'all are doing it, just because <laughs> of scale.
3: <laughs> so I'm just personally curious. That's a good question. I want uh, Gary. Do you know how? Say you worked there in the past. Any idea? Yeah. So. It's
2: like a nuclear thing where it's three people need to come together to turn the key to sign it. Yeah. So it's like a split type of thing. And you usually have build and release engineers or a group, and those people have to be very, very trusted. We have something similar um, set up here.
1: I mean, just imagine the level of damage you could do if you had those signing keys. Like if you were able to sign your own system image using like Samsung's keys, for example, then you could literally put whatever you wanted into that system image and flash it onto any device and the bootloader would accept it as a valid system image and boot it up. And then you basically have full control over the operating system of some user's device. Like they definitely have to keep that key under lock and key.
3: Yep. (laughs) Yeah, I just just put it with a... a, uh... A cage that has a bunch of poisonous animals in it and nobody goes for it it's weird no? yeah essentially awesome it's, it's mixed pet. in with yeah exactly
2: that's where I, we keep we it do that definitely in the physical world i've seen uh some of Keats's reptiles they they um they would keep a, a green key an in indiana jones uh,
3: trap <laughs> <laughs> yeah. she's been a bit of a jerk lately i'm not gonna lie yeah. she, she could definitely defend it
2: the safety of those things is, is a, a big thing and it usually mixes the same types of security you'd expect from a two-factor authentication that mixes who you are with what you know with uh, what you have and where you are type of thing it'll be essentially a mix of those things split across uh, multiple people
1: yeah and key leaks you know even if they don't happen at the oem level they could happen at the factory or if somehow some malicious developer or hacker were able to extract the keys from the trust zone on the device. There are different ways to do it. All of them incredibly difficult. But if that were to happen for certain features, I believe Google has the ability to revoke keys that are used for attestation, for example. And if that were to happen, then all of a sudden you'd find yourself unable to use so many applications that rely on attestation, like a lot of yeah, banking. So, and,
2: go ahead. Right. The attestation keys and the wide bind keys that you mentioned, there are mechanisms built into the chips when it's Widevine ones, there's like a back mechanism to where it gets completely inaccessible or completely wiped, essentially. Yeah, those type of things, there are built in measures. Android devices have been around long enough for Google to be very, very conscious of what that would look like, essentially, if, if that ever happened.
1: And it's happened before, if you look up news reports of, after an upgrade, my Widevine L1 certification went down to Widevine L3. And all of a sudden you can't watch HD videos on Netflix. It's a very common problem you'll see. And at some point it happened to a device and users had to actually ship their device to the OEM so that they could manually reprovision those devices. It was a big deal. Thankfully, Google is moving towards remote key provisioning, at least for the attestation keys. If that happens, they're able to reissue a key without having to actually reprovision at the factory level. But like, you know, these things, if they go wrong, they go horribly wrong. Right. And
2: a lot of these devices are fused. So you do have keys that are prod fused. So you have something that will try to do something nefarious to that device will eventually blow the fuse at a hardware level. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a little bit different from what we were talking about, Michelle, but there are other safeguards when people are trying to do something nefarious to the device itself. But yeah, that'd be a nightmare. If any OEM uh, would need to go and have things reprovisioned, it's, it's not even great on the hardware level for us to do anything there.
3: That line of questioning calls back to our earlier conversation about pre-production devices and certification. It is very funny when you're test driving pre-production devices that have not been CTS certified, which is the Google certification for your devices. Certain apps just won't work. They aren't available. And it, I personally find it quite entertaining because as the CEO, I start dog fooding a unit basically as soon as it's available to me to start dog fooding. from absolute garbage, fresh off the factory line, EVT one to now DVT, where the hardware and the software is really good, but it hasn't finished CTS certification. Netflix just doesn't work. You can't download Netflix onto the device pre certification. The rationale behind that is around security and privacy, which makes a lot of sense. But certain apps just won't be available on pre production devices. And people have to be aware of that. That's what we go through as we do development.
2: Yeah, I think high level, there's something called safety net. And when you don't have a CTS certified build on there, safety net just breaks, which everybody like so many apps rely on. And Play Store will note that your build is not a CTS certified build and you won't have anything, a lot of things show up like the banking apps, anything that relies on safety net won't show up as part of
3: that. terrify everybody, all of my banking apps work perfectly fine without safety net (laughs) enabled. Really scares me about all my banks actually. And a lot of the open source projects
2: used to be able to spoof. like they have something called micro G, which is essentially a way to simulate what Google APIs would do. So it was a way to like reroute Google APIs to do something else. And it'd be just like a mask. And SafeNet used to be able to be spoofed, but they have since changed that as of uh, maybe like three years ago or two and a half years ago to where it's not something that can be spoofed uh, any longer. So people yeah, are on that boat or I think Calyx and Lineage and some other and Graphene all start doing something differently uh, to allow you to have a, a different experience.
1: Actually, speaking of Micro-G, perhaps by the time this episode goes up, we'll already have our episode speaking with a Micro-G developer up. So if you want to learn more about that, go back and listen to the Micro-G episode, go give that a listen. Yeah, Micro-G is just one of those things where Google can just change something
2: to make it not work, which <laughs> has always been the risk of anything getting around Google.
1: Yeah. This is a uh, kind of veering away from software back to hardware, but for the sake of users like regular users who might have this question and i know the gist of it but i wanted to hear more from you guys the u.s market is particularly difficult to support because of the bands that carriers deploy in certain cities are not really the same as what you'll get in europe so like if you want to support a certain device a lot of the bands you might have to support will be different and so I wanted to ask you, what does it actually take if you wanted to ship a device in the U.S. with support for Band 71, which is very commonly used by T-Mobile? What does that actually mean? What do you have to do to get that to work?
3: It Really, we work with our CM and our radio team or our modem team to make sure that we support the bands that we need to support in this country and check which ones overlap with different countries. It is a I'm trying to think of a less convoluted way to say this. We basically look at all the countries we would like to support and ship into, look at where carrier bands overlap, and break them out into separate SKUs, depending on where the overlap lies. Actually, I was just having a conversation about this with a friend of mine who works at uh, the other phone company in Cupertino. He's a big league over there, and even he was telling me that he is grabbing ROW SKUs, which for everybody, that sounds for rest of world, which typically means Asia and Middle East. The reason is because the iPhone 14, obviously, the US SKU doesn't come with a SIM card, uh, a physical SIM card, which frankly I w- was astonishing to me and a lot of other people. So they're internally even trying to grab rest of world units because they want to keep a physical SIM. But that uh, I, I guess that does answer your question. Is we do look at where the bands overlap and work from there, and typically we get a North America EU SKU, we get a Africa slash Middle East SKU. And we would do a ROW SKU, which would typically be China and India targeted. Now, True. India has um, some very special rules though, and we can get, <laughs> that's a whole separate story too. I think in
0: terms of the U.S., maybe Michelle, correct me if I'm wrong. The discussion would be to me like we have a situation where carriers in the U.S., for lack of a better word, effectively whitelist network features. They operate network feature whitelists. That's how AT&T does it. It's how T-Mobile does it. It's how Verizon does it. T-Mobile is probably the least egregious about this.
3: I yeah, would say. Sure. They, they are by far the easiest one to work with. AT&T is in the middle and Verizon is the most difficult to work with.
0: Right. And so it's far less about band support in my mind,
3: because Qualcomm
0: really handles that. That's their job. It's more about like, hey, I'm on Verizon, I want voice over LTE to work appropriately and to have wideband voice and for calls to not sound terrible when somebody calls on somebody on AT&T, because AT&T and Verizon probably have a cross volty agreement, but it probably only works for handsets that are certified for their networks directly and whitelisted, I would guess. Yeah. There's all these little bits and pieces, <laughs> especially for interop, that can yeah. destroy your phone's features because you won't pay AT&T a quarter of a million dollars or whatever it is. Yeah, the the number's Uh, a
3: lot bigger now. Oh, Um, cool. (laughs) Yeah. So there are two versions of certification. There are many versions, but the high level to explain it is each carrier basically has two versions of certification. One would be BYOD, which means we, Saga, Solana are selling a phone that is open market and is safe to use on US-based networks, meaning... Timo, Verizon, or AT&T, plus all their MVNOs built off of those three networks. But basically, that's who we're dealing with. And what that means is we do go through a certification process with each of those carriers, ensuring with them that our device won't break their network. And that allows to be whitelisted on their network, allows for interoperability, and allows for those high-level features to work. Right now, the phone will work before the certifications are done, making calls, sending texts, but you won't get Volte, you won't get a lot of other things like that until it's finished that whitelist, that BYOD certification. And keep in mind, each carrier has a different name for this. We just internally call it BYOD to not lose our minds. On top of that, there is a full level carrier certification, and that's if you're selling through their stores and that's where the big money comes in. If you want to sell a device through verizon.com, at and Tmo.com, you're going to go through their full certification process and the full certification process, I'm going say this without me getting sued by one of them, um, sucks. It is complicated. It is inherently biased against the phone manufacturer because they want to get you to pay more to ask for waivers. Uh, I don't remember if it was on the last time we did a podcast or it was somebody else that I was talking about. The most egregious one isn't actually in the US. The most egregious example I've ever seen in my career was in Japan, where part of their certification process for full cert was the phone had to survive a 1.5 meter face down drop onto a steel L bracket without Any damage, no scratch, no crack, nothing will pass that. Again, we go back to my billet aluminum, (laughs) you will get a scratch and a ding. If you drop it from one and a half meters onto a steel L bracket. And it was just there to force the phone manufacturer to either pay a little bit more money for a waiver or accept worse terms on the sale. And so that is a big reason why we went open market on Saga was we didn't want to deal with that beyond the headache you're talking somewhere between half a million and a million dollars per carrier per year per SKU. So you can imagine that adds up really, really quickly for even a big company, let alone a smaller mid-tier company.
1: You actually did bring up that Japan example on the on our one. podcast. Yeah. Speaking of Japan, I think a lot of people don't know about the country is that <laughs> there's a very specific piece of hardware that is pretty much only shipped on devices in that country. And uh-huh. it's called uh, Oh, NFC dash F Felica, okay. right? And like, if you want to <laughs> ship a device in that country, you pretty much have to make Japan only SKU, or you risk having to ship that hardware on every single other device around the world, and you know, increasing the cost everywhere else. Uh, yeah,
3: we spent a to... lot of money at Essential going down the build a Felica only SKU that I don't even think we actually <laughs> shipped, or if we did, we shipped like 500 units, and we spent yeah,
0: we're talking of about getting there. We're talking about the country that also came up with a completely different version of the ATM card and authorization system. They have their own bank card system in Japan that's completely incompatible with the rest of the world. They had a completely incompatible cellular network, IDEN. Like, they've always been a little bit different in terms of (laughs) tech adoption.
2: Yeah, and I think in terms of adoption in general, they do favor probably the manufacturers that come from their country as well. So even breaking into the market on number of units you're probably moving in that country, considering needing a, your own SKU and having the Velika support. It becomes an interesting conversation pretty quickly on whether or not we should be launching there. And yeah, this is a conversation that we'll be having, You know, I'm sure, on our next gen device.
1: Oh, and uh, speaking of favoritism, I'm sure you're aware, well aware of India and like how it heavily favors manufacturers or OEMs that manufacture the majority of parts of the phone within the country. Like if you don't manufacture the entire phone inside India using Indian plants, then you're going to pay a hefty import tax.
3: Yep. There are basically four countries that fall under that category, which are Russia doesn't really matter these days, India, Brazil. And I always forget the fourth one. It's like some random one in Africa. Yeah. We're not buying a lot of, but yeah, India and Brazil being the two main ones where you have to manufacture, you have to do some percentage of manufacturing there, typically you get away with final assembly just because it's not like they have chip fabs in Brazil or India that can meet four nanometer processes.
0: Right. And that's why moto made so many phones in Brazil. (laughs) That's why they're also so big
3: there. Yep.
1: And it's Uh, also why pixels are so expensive in India. (laughs) Yeah. Makes a lot of
3: sense.
1: Circling back to the carrier example, I kind of wanted to bring up the software side of things beyond like the whatever certification process you have to go through. From what I've heard, carriers also often have software asks. Like they might say, we want you to modify your status bar icon so that you show our specific branding for the 5G logo, or that you show our boot animation for your product whenever it boots up. I'm pretty sure this is actually the driving force behind one of Android's most used platform features, which is the runtime resource overlay, which is like the feature that lets OEMs actually overlay like the resource of an application. And because carriers were constantly asking companies to make these changes to the Android builds themselves, that would have to necessarily create multiple versions or like complicate the build of the Android build that OEMs are shipping out to devices, like. Creating this whole system just so OEMs could say, okay, you can put all your customizations in the separate app, and then they'll only apply whenever the user inserts a SIM card that's from that carrier or that device is provisioned on that carrier. So like, even these tiny little things, like just having a device sold in the United States, there's so many complicating factors that go into it.
3: Yeah, and that's where we get into that, oh, if you don't pass their individual certifications and you ask for a waiver, they're going to come back and say, well... If you want a waiver, we're going to need to do X, Y, and Z in software. That might be an example. And it's yeah. just so frustrating, which is why that is some market. cartel level behavior. If you, it, if you own all the hardware to make networks work, you, you do have a monopoly or you have a cartel going between the three biggies. So yeah, that's exactly it.
2: Yeah. I think you'll see a lot of carrier bloat on devices that have a flagship carrier where you see them in stores. They'll have their own agenda to kind of load in certain software that might complement their network, really. Visual voicemail apps or things that they use as like a gateway into other products and services that they offer as a company. The worst part of it is they're not uninstallable. At most, you can hide them because they are part of the system image a lot of the times. For I mean, I I do think that trend is
0: changing, though. Mm -hmm. I believe most bloatware these days is uninstallable because Google has provided that. Provisioning mechanism to carriers during onboarding, right. um, such right. that even when you load a new SIM card, the device reprovisions and then it says, Hey, do you want to load this crap on your phone? And usually <laughs> it lets you avoid some of it.
2: Yeah, but if you're going through the full blown, not BYOD route that we are going currently, then they have a lot of hidden agendas to say, Have the boot logo. Like you'll always see like an ATT boot logo. And I don't know if that goes away now. Uh, I haven't tested that. I haven't switched you know, out of my current carrier to see. Uh, oh, I've had we've been to open, open market, market, market for, for yeah. a very
3: long time.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> right. I'm kind of I don't know, what, even if uh, Michelle,
0: yeah. are you aware if AT&T is even still branding the boot animations for like Galaxy oh.
1: devices? I So actually, yeah, I mean, I just bought I mean, uh, this is an older <laughs> device, to be fair, but my Galaxy Tab S5e that's undergoing the journey of transforming into an Android automotive tablet, it came with the stock AT&T firmware and that had an AT&T boot logo. I had to flash the US cellular firmware just so I could unlock the bootloader. And that had, Mm. when I did that, that came with the US cellular boot logo. (laughs) And so, yeah, they're still doing it. And it's really interesting to see how they're able to throw their weight around because of course they're massive in the US and they can, but like, you're also starting to see actually just apps or like services throw their weight around too. Like Netflix is one example I think a lot of people don't know is with Widevine L1. So even if your device is Widevine L1 certified, that doesn't mean that the device will be able to stream 4K videos on Netflix or will be able to stream HDR videos on Netflix. I believe Netflix has their own separate certification process just for that. And I don't know if you can talk about that, but I just wanted to bring it up because it's something that I always had questions about. I think we are we haven't gotten there yet with the Netflix streaming, like a lot of companies do that to make
2: sure that you're given the right experience on the hardware. I know Spotify does this. If you do anything with altering their application or, or provide a service they'll have their own type of certification. We, we had a lot of that kind of chat when we were doing Project Gem at Essential. So a lot of people are just very, very protective of how their services is consumed. And I feel like Netflix is probably one of those ones where it's only going to, it, you have to be allowed listed uh, to get the optimal experience on that device and it, i'm sure it's a mix of not only the hardware capabilities but probably your wi-fi chip or like something that i'm not sure we've never gone through it but i'm certain that they have a lot of talented engineers who are doing that for a reason but i don't know if do you have any insight on why they would do that
3: yeah. i honestly do not um it's something i'll look into though i'm quite curious yeah i mean my guess would be for netflix's side of
0: things and this is speculation but as a service provider, they're heavily incentivized to maximize revenue to like the devices that are HDR 4K certified. And I'm guaranteeing mm-hmm. those are all sold through carriers because why wouldn't they be? And so okay. the carriers probably have something on the back end there. You're selling a high end Netflix device, you get a better bounty when you Mm -hmm. sell this device and you get a subscription, basically. There's no way in my mind, 4K, HDR, these are very standardized things, the codecs, and like you can advertise your decodabilities. This is not complex. This is Netflix playing business, I think.
1: Right. Right. And you'll see this often with preload agreements. Like why do certain devices have Netflix or other applications preloaded? Well, it's because their OEMs maybe signed a revenue sharing agreement with them. Or why does every single TV remote seem to have a Netflix button on it? Well, that's probably more of a requirement to even be allowed to <laughs> use Netflix on that TV versus anything revenue sharing. Like there's all these different behind the scenes agreements or requirements that 99.9% of consumers will never know. But as an OEM, it's such a huge, massive headache to deal with. There's so many different things to keep track of. Yeah.
2: I think there's also incentive for OEMs to have share too. Like we've had a lot of considerations of that in the past beyond even awesome for rev share agreements, for preloads. And they can be pretty substantial for companies to have that revenue share for a small company. But for larger companies, I'm sure they're also incentivized from that other end to accept an agreement, to put a dedicated button on a remote, like you said, or even something on the home screen and part of the onboarding experience. Like a lot of times we, on the business side, we were looking at real estate and real estate comes in the form of the onboarding experience, your home screen, In a folder or as a dedicated hot seat button or even as part of some of the minus one screens that comes along with the business talks which is always interesting from a manufacturer
1: yeah and this is the benefit of android just becoming more and more modular over time as more and more entities have a vested interest in having more requests more integrations and having all these things you need to be able to manage all this stuff so It's been a few years since I looked at like how Samsung's One UI is distributed, but it is so, so modular. They have these country-specific codes that enable certain flags within certain carriers within certain countries. They have all of this built into, I don't know how many different shipping firmware builds, but a company like that, that's the reason they're able to offer so many different devices across so many different channels that are barely modified from each other. But like, if you're a smaller OEM, how do you deal with that? It's, It's gotten harder, but it's also gotten a little easier with the modularization of Android. And of course, if you're going to be developing your software for your own device or you want to make a device, you're going to be needing some talented software engineers to do that. And I believe you both have an announcement regarding that.
3: Oh, we we touched on it earlier. I think we we are keeping a physical sim. Was that the big one? Oh, no, that we closed our series A. Um, Yeah, that was really awesome. It took a lot longer than I, you know, lawyers. Uh, but we're very excited to say we've closed our series a we are not sharing the exact dollar amounts however it is more than enough to keep awesome healthy and running rampant for many many years to come and we're excited to say that solana was the uh, investor as well as our partner in all this so we've raised quite a bit of money and we're the, the main use of those funds honestly are not for hardware not for equipment not for marketing, but rather for people. And we are going to be making a big push to hire software engineers. They are back-end system engineers, but I think Gary would do a much better job of explaining exactly what Awesome is looking for.
2: Yeah, so here's the hiring plug. We are hiring quite a bit on the system software engineering side. So people with BSP experience and have knowledge with working with different hardware modules from a mobile phone perspective, there's so many different parts that are involved beyond the CPU, interacting with all of that bring up. So anyone who has C or C++ knowledge is what we'll be looking for. Initially, we do have open spots across the board for software for QA automation testers. We also have people for more front end and product related roles as well. And then stuff that will definitely interest people. Uh, There's a lot of opportunity that you'd be able to work on here at awesome. And we are just looking to match people's interest and experience with what we have to do, not only on this first release, but a lot of other things that we are working on internally beyond our mobile device, our first mobile device.
3: Yeah. Well, I'll throw an extra plug for just coming to work for us. Obviously, we're a startup that is a lot of fun to work with. We're working on new and interesting things. The first product is a traditional phone, but certainly the future products, we're going to get a lot crazier. And if you're into wild, exciting new projects where you'll have a lot of say in how it happens and say in what the products look like, this is the company to come work for. 100% remote, so we're hiring all over the world.
1: And David, I think you could tell our listeners here what Esper has to offer, how we're interested in BSP development and, you know, AOSP (laughs) development in general.
0: We sure are. So Esper is really in the business of helping companies, maybe not unlike Awesome, but probably not in the consumer space necessarily, do things like provision devices at the factory, And the way we're helping out with that is really at the management layer. And we're making sure that once those devices leave the factory, whether they're flashed with our AOSP firmware or the manufacturer's firmware, that they can be managed, updated, controlled anywhere in the world at all times. So if you're building something that runs Android, and maybe it's not something that goes in somebody's pocket every day and is this extremely important life device that's very personal, but maybe it's something an employee is using, something like a mobile point-of-sale device, which looks like a phone but takes credit cards. Or it could be something stationary, like a traditional cash register. You would just call it a point-of-sale system. If you're in that world, you're making devices that transact, that assist customers, provide customer service, enhance customer experience in any way. Come talk to us at Esper. We have so much experience, not just in managing and updating and servicing these devices from the software end, but also in helping you identify the right hardware for your use case, which is such a big part of this process. So if you want to come talk to us, we're at Esper.io.
1: Thanks, David. And thanks, Jason and Gary, for joining us on Android Vice again. It's great talking to you both. Like, I'm sure folks listening will agree that you're probably some of the most open execs in the tech industry like it's rare to talk to people who are actually willing to talk about these things without going through layers and layers of pr speaking of pr <laughs> you haven't heard him talk yet since i started the recording but we have ryan hagar on the show and yeah if you know him from his days at android police you know he's a great guy he's uh very very well spoken and uh ryan i don't know if you want to say something to the folks here say hi didn't hear anything yeah <laughs> Hello. 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 <laughs> <laughs> right. If you're, if you're a PR a journalist listening to this, you probably hear from Ryan in the future. I'm yep. certainly looking forward to hearing from him and the rest of awesome, for whatever you guys are working on beyond the saga. But uh,
3: yeah, we kind of, uh, you know, maybe we should aim to do this once a quarter or something, come in. So just maybe a shorter conversation, just talk about what we're well, working on, random things. Yeah. Just a lot of fun to be very transparent about how products are made and how decisions are made. I'll tell you what, as somebody who knows all the little intricacies of how the hardware decisions are made every day when I'm on Twitter or wherever reading about people's comments, how come blah, 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 didn't have this or had that. Like, oh my God, you people don't have a clue how the rules of Lego inside a phone (laughs) or or any electronic device are so, there are some that are incredibly strict and they're super obscure to anybody who isn't in the industry. It'd be really fun to do a like just a, almost a Q and A of why is it like this? Oh gosh, well, yeah, I'm i have about it. to regulate. <laughs> i have about to regulate so
1: much of what I say on Twitter because like, I'm pretty sure I don't actually know as much as I think I know about that topic. So I'm just gonna shut up and just keep my focus <laughs> on Android. So that's why I only tweet about Android now.
0: Okay, I have a question. <laughs> we can end it on, it's a silly one. Volume yeah. rocker,
3: love it or hate it? Hate it, hate it. it, it they're, they're paying to get the feel right. And I'm, I'm a stickler for the feel. Uh, I agree. Pixel 6 Pro's volume rocker, terrible. Best
0: volume rocker of all time, Pixel 4a.
3: Ooh, Uh, you know what? (laughs) I
0: agree. Very clicky.
1: Very clicky.
3: Yeah, difficult to waterproof it also. Like, really difficult to get rockers to waterproof nicely because you have to consider now one side is going to lift rather than just compress every time you push it. And the buttons, the holes in your device are always the ingress for water or dust or pocket lint. So... I'm a big fan of individual buttons. I'm also a fan of no buttons at some point.
0: (laughs) I thought you were going to go there. That's an interesting position. HTC tried it and did a very bad job. I would love to see somebody do it better.
3: Yeah, the the haptics are still being built out. The pressure sensors, it's, it's one of those things. It's like through display cameras, even through display fingerprint sensors. It's like almost there, but not quite.
1: We definitely got to get you back on the show whenever the first company goes fully portless on their device. I'm sure you'll have a lot to say Uh, about that.
3: You know what? I'll tell you who's going to scream. It's software engineers. Literally, I've had conversations even (laughs) this week about it. It's because during development, you need to be able to access it. So you need to have a USB port. And if there's a problem in MP, it's a pain in the butt to try to figure it out.
1: Oh, gosh. and Wear OS smartwatches. It's already such a hassle just to ADB into those things. You got to do it all wirelessly.
3: Exactly. And then if there's an actual problem, oh, you, you could be screwed. So not having a plug is a, you know, it's an interesting question or a, 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 at least a single port. I can imagine going completely buttonless, but portless will be difficult. Well, you know, it's going to happen. It's it's going to happen.
1: And we can already guess which company is going to herald that future.
3: Yeah, there, there is a gem, a gem that had no holes in it because we're making this really complicated piece of glass. It was like, hey, it's a lot stronger if I don't have to cut holes in it. And so we made one, and yeah, there was a lot of yelling. <laughs> I was told to be quiet, sit in the corner, kind of thing. Hogo uh, pins are just as good; they're fine. But <laughs> <laughs> <I> keep saying, <laughs> "Well, cool." Thank you very much for having us, guys. Really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, and thank you, everyone, again for listening.